0: what is your story of the greatest meal that you've ever had? Tell me about the greatest meal. Maybe it was a surprise. Maybe you walked into a restaurant and you had no idea how good it was, and maybe it didn't cost that much or whatever. Well, my wife and I were in New York City about 15 years ago for our 15th anniversary. And We were told that if you want a great meal, go down 46th Avenue, Restaurant Row. Well, being the person I was, I didn't make reservations. And I was a little nervous about going because I'm so cheap, and I knew it was going to be expensive. So I said, well, let's just just go early and kind of check it out. So we went about 5 o'clock, and what you learn about Restaurant Row in New York City at 5 o'clock is no one's there. No one comes till like seven. And so it was like, it was like a ghost town, except one place. As we walked by this little bitty restaurant, it was teeming with people. People at the bar, people at tables, people upstairs, people on the balcony. And I looked at my wife and I said, that's the restaurant. We've got to go here. And so I asked the guy at the front, do we, do you have a seat? And he said, let me go check. And he comes back and he says, ah, I've just got one table and it's four, two, and it just happens to be on the balcony. I said, awesome. We'll take it. And we go up there, not paying any attention. We start looking at the menu and I do my typical Southern thing and try to engage the waiter and tell me your favorite meal and this and that. And he just, he looks at me a little strangely And he says, sir, do you not know where you are? And I said, I'm at a restaurant. I don't even know the name of it. He said, you're at whatever it was called. And I said, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. He said, have you ever seen the show Lydia's Kitchen? It's this lady that has restaurants all over the world, cookbooks, cooking shows, And little did I know, we were about to eat the greatest meal of our lives. And as I look at the Gospel of John, and we look at passage after passage, and we look at John's purpose where he says, I've written this so that you believe, but not just believe. It is very evangelistic in nature. But I don't want you to just believe. I want you to continue to believe. I want you to not just know where you are but continue to eat this meal. And bask in the glory of the meal that you are eating and how good it is and how satisfying it is. Even when you're dissatisfied. Go back to believing and continuing to believe that you may have life in Jesus' name. Name. Let's look at our text this morning. It is about a meal, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. And just as a way of reminder, John often breaks down his sections by giving a narrative Jesus interacting with people, doing something, often a miracle, and then a long discourse, a long talk. And so rather than breaking all of those down, we're going to do narratives and then bring in different verses from the discourses. So we'll do that today. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain... And there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. God, as Jeffrey prayed earlier, Um, We are people that very often readily believe and we want to believe, and yet very often we find ourselves um, dissatisfied, disappointed, um, unbelieving, doubtful, uh, even grumbling. Lord, thank you that you feed people like us. Would you give us the greatest meal today? And Lord, if we have partaken of this meal, would you draw us right back up to that table that we may continue to eat, that we may be satisfied, that we may have life in your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if you saw this on uh, Instagram which I call Instant Graham, but uh, it was this cute, beautiful story about this young boy named Mississippi, and Mississippi had a major heart condition. I don't know if he had a terminal condition. It was fatal, but he had a bad heart condition, and he loved Lamar Jackson. He loved the Baltimore Ravens, and so his parents took him to this hotel, and They were in a conference room, and he didn't know why he was there. Why are we at this hotel? Why are we at this conference room? He's a typical little boy. There's nothing to do in this conference room. He's getting impatient, and he's getting antsy, kind of complaining. And then the door opens, and it's Fritz. Just kidding. It's Lamar Jackson. And this little boy named Mississippi springs out of his chair, runs, and just embraces Lamar Jackson. And Lamar Jackson is just grinning from ear to ear and just holds this little boy for probably a good minute. And as you think about that story, think about this text. Very often, and we've seen this several times in John, Jesus delays... He will delay again. He puts us through hard situations. He makes us wait. He brings things into our lives that we don't want. And then we get to a point and we realize we don't have resources. And he walks in the door. And he's right there. And what we learn in that moment is that Jesus has everything. And not just that He has everything, but He is everything. First of all, what we're going to see today is that we have nothing. This is the hardest point for us to accept in this text this morning, but it's clearly a point that Jesus was teaching His disciples and that John is passing on to us. Verses 1 through 9. To understand that Jesus has everything, and more importantly, that Jesus is everything, we have to understand that we have nothing. I was going to name this point, we don't know what to do. The summary of this point is simply this. We have no resources at the end of the day. We may pretend to have resources. We may build up a bunch of resources. We may have resources we lean on and look to and depend on and trust. But at the end of the day, we do not have any resources. We are empty. We are broke. We are lacking. Jesus knows what He's going to do and what He will do, but we don't know what to do and it is okay to admit that and quit faking that you do know what to do our context Jesus intends to get away with his disciples but there's a problem you can imagine this problem with all of the healings and the miracles there comes notoriety and with notoriety comes fans and crowds and Instagram followers he encounters his first large crowd. They are, verse 2, following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Back up to verse 1. He first goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to what they call the hill country, and he sits down with his disciples. Verse 5. He lifts up his eyes, and he sees this large crowd coming toward him. You can imagine what that feels like. You've been healing people, you've been doing ministry, and you finally get your disciples, and you go away for some quiet time for some fellowship of the saints, right? Just your close friends. And then this crowd shows up. First thing I thought was when we had little babies, you'd finally sit down at the end of the day to eat your bowl of cereal, and the baby'd start crying. Like, but Jesus wants some alone time with his disciples, and this crowd shows up. Look at verse 5 again. He asks Philip a question. It's kind of a crazy question, isn't it? Where are we to buy bread so that this big old crowd can eat? When I first read it, I thought, is he sort of like my dad would used to say, I'm pulling your leg? Is that what he's doing? Philip answers, 200 denarii worth of bread, that was about eight months' wages, so take your salary and go eight months down the road. He says that would not even put a dent into buying enough food for this huge crowd. The emphasis is that it is a very large Crowd. Most estimates say that it's about 20,000. If you look at the other accounts of this feeding in the other narratives, the gospel narratives, if you add women and children that were likely there, you've got about 20,000 people. The Yum Center holds 22,000 people. You ever been there when they start coming out of a concert or an event? And those people are crowding, following Jesus. And Jesus, how are we going to, or where are we going to, how are we going to feed all these people? And you just imagine one rough estimate. I actually texted a chef in our church and said, how much money would it cost to feed all these people? He said, roughly $80,000 to $100,000. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of people. Verses 8 and 9, Andrew chimes in. Well, there's this boy here who has five barley loaves and some pickled herring. The word for bread used here in John is bread for the poor. In other words, it's, it's paltry. There's nothing here. This is like straight out of Elijah and Elisha. We're down to our last grain of flour. We don't have enough. We don't really have anything. And we don't know what to do. And it's clear, look again at verse 6, that Jesus is doing this on purpose. He said it to test Philip, for he knew what he would do. He's not pulling his leg. He's actually testing him. He's putting him in a difficult situation, and then he's asking a difficult question on top of that. And so notice that method for a second. Here is this... Anxious situation, these overwhelming odds, this huge challenging crowd that needs to be fed, and then Jesus asks a question that introduces more anxiety and tension into the situation. Do you see that? Jesus is over all of this, and He is teaching the disciples, and He's teaching us something. And what He wants to see... He wants us to see is that we really don't have anything. And he's introducing more anxiety into the situation. And notice also this, again, verse 7 and verse 9, their attempts to answer Jesus only amplify the problem. You Think about this. You get in these situations where you get under pressure. You're in challenging circumstances. And if you're, some of you are like me, you just start making declarations, right? Well, this, we just need to do this, or this is going to help, or I don't like this, and whatever. And it doesn't help at all. It just amplifies the fact that I can't do anything about it. I can't fix it. Well, here's a little boy with paltry resources, and all that does is amplify the situation. And what what do you notice they don't do? They don't look to Jesus, who is standing right there with them, asking the question, introducing the tension. So in a nutshell, you have overwhelming circumstances that Jesus adds tension to and anxiety that lead to these Observations and declarations that only exasperate the situation. I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and I thought of the Geico commercial, if you've seen it, that's making fun of horror movies. And you've got these four scared people that are on the run, and they kind of come to a stop and they're they're looking for help, and they're like, Well, let's run into that scary house and hide in the attic. And the other person says, no, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's run into the scary house and hide in the basement. And then the other guy goes, no, let's go into that scary shed with that scary guy. And the girl's like, how about we get in the running car? No, 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 let's, let's run into the shed. And that's very often how situations can be. We have situations in our life that financial struggles and challenges, maybe recurring arguments with a spouse or an extended family member that you don't really want to see at Thanksgiving, or maybe it's the the leaves from your neighbor's house keep coming into your yard, political situations that didn't go the way you wanted them to, or loneliness or And then then on top of that, questions are asked and things come up that sort of add more anxiety and we we make declarations and we think, well, this is going to help. And what Jesus is trying to do is go, here's a running car. Here's the running car. And that's where He leads us in this text. They do sort of ignore their emptiness. They see it. They make these declarations that exasperate it. But that leads to our second point. Jesus doesn't even interact with all that, does he? He just starts acting. He just starts doing things. Look at verses 10 through 13. Jesus is showing us that we really don't have anything, but he has Everything. Actually, back up to verse 6 because as I was rereading it this morning, this, this passage, this verse was jumping off of the page to me. He said this to test him, which we can focus on the test. What is Jesus doing here? It's just getting harder, and he seems to just be exasperating it with this test. And he himself knew what he would do. Do you see that? Jesus knew, Jesus is omniscient. He knew what He was going to do in the future. Jesus is omniscient about your future. And He knew what He would do. He is sovereign and He reigns over all things. So Jesus, in this one short verse, John is saying, He's got this. This situation that you are in that is causing great anxiety, that is showing you your emptiness and your lack of resources, look to the One who is sovereign over this situation and is sovereign over your future. He's going to clothe you. He's going to feed you. And then notice what He does verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. It's almost like the verse the, the verses just slow down and you go frame by frame. Have the people sit down. In other words, they can't help themselves. I'm about to do something for them. Verse 11, he took the loaves and he waited given thanks, he distributed to them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. Notice the Christ-centeredness of this. Jesus took the loaves. He gave thanks, and then He distributes them to all the people. And notice what the text is emphasizing here in verse 11. They ate this huge crowd that would fill the Yum Center, ate as much as they wanted. Verse 12, When they had eaten their fill. Verse 13, There were 12 basketfuls. As if the disciples were to reflect on this and go, you know what, there are 12 disciples. There were 12 tribes of Israel. This 12 thing, this complete people of God thing in the Bible is important. And what Jesus is doing here, He is emphasizing something. That yes, we have nothing. And our circumstances often exasperate that in our attempts to fix it and declare things. And what Jesus is emphasizing here is that I have everything. And I'm not going to give you just enough. I'm going to give you more than you need. As much as you want. Eat your fill, and then there is some left over. Anybody grow up with leftovers? Jesus is saying, I am sufficient to take care of all of your needs. Do you see His lavish care here? And His lavish provision? And His lavish generosity? It's interesting again, look back at verse 11. Even though as we've been saying through the Gospel of John, Jesus is God and God is Jesus. There is no God in heaven unlike Jesus. If you want to understand God, look at Jesus. But it's a clear distinction right now that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and is the second person as a man. He is looking up to his Father and he is giving thanks. He doesn't skip that, and, and that is not to be lost on us. He is looking to God and he's saying, You are are providing all of this, Father. You are a generous God. You give a lavish provision. Now, at my home, I am the curmudgeon in the family, and my wife is the generous one. She's already decorating for Christmas. Already getting gifts. I'm like, let's, let's spend that. Let's, whoa, whoa, whoa. She's the one that did our shoebox. And she's the one that does our Halloween candy. She loves it. She goes out and buys all this candy. And I say, sweetheart, there's only three kids in our neighborhood. People leave our neighborhood because people are older and they go to sleep early. They don't even hand out candy. She's like, but they might come. And so she's got these big old bowls of candy and candy that I know we're going to have to eat later. But every year I play this trick on her. She's waiting. She is waiting to open that door and give out free candy. And I sneak outside. And I've got this, I've got this iPhone thing. You can do videos. Did y'all know you can do videos on those? And I start filming myself walking up and I got a duck under the window. This year I had to crawl because she knew I was gonna do it. And I knock on the door. And I I get her. She comes running out, grabs the big bowl, runs to the door all excitedly, and then she sees me and she's like, Honey! She wants to give. Do you stop and think about those difficult places, especially in your past, that God has shown up when you were at the end of your rope? Even just financially. That bill you couldn't pay or you had no idea that car, how that was going to get taken care of. you reflect on the goodness and generosity of God? I did the math for our meals this week on 20 years of raising children. We spent at least $216,000 on groceries, at least. You know who provided that? God. Some of you have adopted children in this church, and you had no idea how it was going to be provided for. And you know who provided for it? God. God. Some of you thought you would never have a spouse. And you know who provided? God. And some of you who still would like to have a spouse, you know who's providing for your needs right now? God. I asked our treasurer this week to tell me the giving at Redeemer, and he said over the past 15 years, the church is given, just to the general budget, I think, $3.7 million. You know who's provided that? God. You know we're going to do a capital campaign, Lord willing, in the next year or so? You know who's going to provide that? God, Forrest pointed up. But here's the, here's the, here's the beautiful part. Who's he providing this for? Jeffrey referenced the Old Testament passage. When I went back and read it, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Think about it. If you have children, and they're whiny, and they're grumbling, and maybe it's even their birthday. I, I got mad as a kid and pouted on my birthday. And maybe they're just having one of those days And they say, can I come eat my birthday cake now? What what did most of you say? You don't deserve it. You've been ugly. You know what God said? Hey, you grumblers. Hey, you whiners. I hear you. Come eat this bread. Come eat this meat. Come eat. These people were misguided crowds that wanted to make Jesus king and wanted Jesus to do what they wanted Him to do for their agenda. Anyone like that? And he says, feed them. Because God causes His reign to fall on the righteous, those who have been saved by grace and the righteousness of Christ, and the unrighteous, those who want nothing to do with it. God causes His snow to come down on their house too. Because God is gracious. He's generous. Do you see God like that? Finally, we see that really big time in the last point. Jesus is everything. It's not just that Jesus has everything, and gives us everything that we need physically and all of those good things, but it's that He is everything. Look over, jump over to verse 35. We won't spend forever here, but I want to show a couple verses. Jesus is saying, look, that bread in the Old Testament was great. That bread I give you right here with this crowd, these physical provisions, all these things I provide for you, those are awesome, but they're not the point I have everything, I give you everything, but more importantly, I am everything. I am the bread of life. Bread is the most simple, sustaining element we have. If I were going to live on a desert island with one food, it wouldn't be bananas, it wouldn't be broccoli, it wouldn't even be steak, it'd be bread. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Why are you running after things that do not satisfy? Look at verses 26 through 29. Truly I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because of the sign, but because of the good stuff I give you. Don't just seek Me for the good stuff. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal of approval. Jesus is pushing further. He's saying there's something more important than physical bread that sustains you. There is bread that satisfies your heart and your soul. And they say, well, okay, God, how do we get it? What must we do? Here we go, back to the works, back to the law. What do I have to do? And Jesus says, this is what you must do Believe in the one He has sent. See what Jesus is saying? Obeying the law will not satisfy you. It doesn't give you eternal life. It doesn't give you... My bread. It is not the bread of life. God is not looking at you and saying, These are the hoops you got to jump through. This is what you got to do to receive me. He's saying, You don't do anything. What you do is believe and receive this gift of Jesus. He goes on to say in verses 32 and following Think about the man back in the wilderness. He's saying, That wasn't it. Moses didn't give you that bread. God gave you that bread. Why are you running to Moses? He said it last week. Stop running to Moses. Moses doesn't give you anything. The Bible without Jesus will not satisfy you. The law without Jesus will not satisfy you. Wrath and judgment without Jesus will destroy you. It will not give you the peace and the satisfaction that you long for. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one that satisfies. Look at verses 37 through 40. We're about to land the plane of promise. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is saying, I am offering you eternal life. I am giving you life with the Father, life with God forever. I will not cast you out if you come to me. You have eternal security with me. See, what Jesus is getting at here is not that we are just empty physically or that we don't have enough. It's that on our own, we are not enough. And that is why we spend so much of our energy and so much of our time trying to, get to convince ourselves and convince others that we are enough. And shame keeps creeping in, saying, You're not enough. And Jesus says, I am enough. You are hungry, and I am the bread of life. You are dissatisfied. I satisfy you. Do you know that the feeding of the 5,000, according to commentators, and I went back and checked some notes I had, is the only miracle narrative in all four Gospels? You realize that? It's like God is saying to us, this is important. You are overbuilt for this world. You cannot be satisfied by it. You are built for God. Let me close with this question in a couple applications. How do you know that you have the bread of life? How do you know that you have the bread of life? First thing is that you are beginning to be satisfied. Satisfied you are beginning to be satisfied. Look again at verse 35. You can read that and you go, well, He says I won't hunger, but I'm still hungry. Yes, but where do you look for that hunger? If you look to Jesus, you will over time, you will become more and more satisfied. Jesus will fill you more and more and you'll draw up to that table and go, this really is the bread of life. And you'll find yourself not reaching for other saviors. And you will find yourself more and more satisfied. Secondly, you will share that bread. Here we have a little boy, and if you grew up with the storybooks like I did, this passage was all about do you share? You should share. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus sharing himself with us. And he goes on in verse 33 And he says, this isn't just for you disciples, but my bread is for the world. Is your world opening more? Is your home opening more? As Paul says, is your heart opening more to other people? Are you wanting to share this bread with other Christians, but also for the world? Do you have an evangelistic heart? Do you care about your unbelieving neighbors. That's the sign that you have the bread of life because you want to share it. And finally, and probably most importantly, you are full of anticipation. You live a life that is suspense-filled. In other words, go back to verse 6. Even though in this life you may be like with the children. You're at the very back. You're at the bottom. You feel like you're last. You're living in suspense because you knew, you know what Jesus is going to do. You know He's coming back. You know He is the bread of life. Even when you go through tests and anxiety. Let me close with this illustration. I was reading Genesis this week. And if you know the story of Joseph, Joseph is a Christ figure in the Old Testament. He is thrown into the pit. He is thought to be dead. And what happens? He raises up to basically rule over Egypt. He's a second in command. And he feeds the world, right? God raises his, him up to feed believers and unbelievers, to give them grain, to give them bread. And of course, his, his little brothers come wandering back in, and they need to be fed. And Joseph knows who they are, but they don't know who Joseph is. And Joseph begins this sort of testing period with them. Sends them back. Bring your brother. All of this stuff. But imagine being Joseph and you are ready to love your brothers. You are ready to forgive your brothers. You are ready to be back and have, have communion with your brothers. And he's waiting it out and he's waiting it out and you see him tear up and run out of the room and finally, finally, he can't contain himself And he's with them and he begins to uncontrollably weep so loud that a couple houses over, Pharaoh and his whole household could hear him. Can you imagine how loud that weeping was? Because he could not control himself. We are busy all our lives trying to control ourselves. And he is overwhelmed with love. And then there's the big reveal... And he falls upon their necks and kisses them. They think, oh no, here it comes and it's coming. This huge embrace by their son. And I thought to myself, what joy in Joseph's heart as he contemplates, oh, I can't wait to reveal myself to my brother's. And then they says, there's a little verse that says, and then they stood around talking to him. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine what it's going to be like one day when God falls upon our necks and kisses us? And we sit around and talk about all those tests and those circumstances that we went through. And we know in the end what he is going to do. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for the future anticipation that we have. Help us in the meantime. Continue to provide for us and continue, God, to give us the bread of life. Draw us up to that table and feed our hearts, feed our souls upon Christ. And Lord, as you feed us, would you share that, we pray, with the world.